welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a contest that if you win, the only thing you receive is death. Please enjoy Cancellation Day. Once upon a time, there was a society that turned everything, even survival, into entertainment. The first cancellation day I remember watching was hailed as an instant classic. A small crew of death row inmates, mostly serial killers, were let loose in Reading, I think? Yeah, actually, I remember the TVs advertising it with the slogan, Paint the Town Red. Right. Almost nothing happened for the first 12 hours. Maybe a stabbing here and there. It turned out that those maniacs had been waiting for it to get dark. They kept the shadows, creeping in through open windows and basement storm doors. The audience's patience was finally paid off in full as screams rang out from nearly every house for the rest of the night. The final survivor was stalked through the woods and ended up in an old abandoned farmhouse. That year, they set off fireworks as the last victim bled out. And then, timed perfectly with the explosions of color, the serial killers would each gun down themselves to carry out their death sentences. I was seven then. And now, all these years later, we find out that our little town has been nominated to be canceled. The news was on almost every station. Our quaint little Brisbane Falls had made this year's poll. Most people were too shocked to do much of anything. And others, like myself, well, we immediately turned our thoughts to our children, who, as always, would be exempt, well, up to three-year-olds anyway. The rest turned into something of a stampede. Once the news spread, I could see my neighbors rushing out their front doors, some with hastily packed bags, leaping into their cars and gunning it for the town limits, as if that would do any good. You are just as likely to get killed trying to escape. See, the moment a town's nomination goes public, the guards are already supposed to be on the scene. But hey, things don't always go the way they're supposed to, right? I heard that during the first cancellation, almost half of Springfield had escaped. Not that anyone officially admitted it. For the next few years, they even brought the guards in a week early. To allow anyone to escape would defeat the whole point. Still, that doesn't prevent animal instinct from taking over. When faced with death, people will do whatever it takes to survive, no matter how illogical. Unless, of course, you have a bigger concern than survival. I let my daughter Tara watch the TV coverage with me. I usually don't let her watch much TV, but I needed to start preparing her mentally for what was going to happen. Although I don't know how much she actually comprehended of the announcement. The powers used the same script as the last time and the time before that. That holier-than-thou speech about how The time has come for us to once again vote in the most important election. Every year, to ensure our survival as a species, a community will be elected to make a sacrifice. I didn't even need to watch anymore, but, you know, curiosity. Results were a week away, but I knew. I knew I wouldn't have much more time to spend with my beautiful little daughter. And I had plans to make. My partner used to make fun of all my scheming, but really, I think I've just always taken advantage of the systems in place to get the best possible outcome for myself. Or, in this case, for my beautiful little Tara. At some point that day, I remember trying to cry, but nothing came out. 
In some way, I almost felt like I'd signed up for what would happen next to my cozy town of Brisbane Falls. After all, I'd certainly been an active participant in Cancellation Day since I was a kid myself. Every year for the past few decades, Cancellation Day had been broadcast as if it were some exciting event, like the Stanley Cup or Wimbledon. Corporations competed for ad space, bidding higher and higher on 30-second spots to sell beer, burgers, or luxury sedans. And just like the rest of the country, every year I watched with my eyes glued to the screen, typically at one of many cancellation parties where we would place bets on the method and the last person standing. Cancellation day first started when I was a little girl, and I was just old enough to remember the outrage. For maybe the first few years, cancellation days were somber affairs. It was like going to church or something. Today we honor those who are to be canceled so that the rest of us may be spared. Give me a break. It was human sacrifice. Granted, it's not like we offered the dead to some old god or as part of a satanic ritual or something, but rather, well, for population control. For too long, mankind ignored the signs as the seas rose and the weather began to destroy us. The people who finally stepped up to make a difference were surprising. The most extreme of the tree huggers and the gun nuts finally came together on climate change and presented a new, controversial proposition. They were fringe at first, but it slowly took a foothold. In school, we studied the political ads extolling the virtues of hunting season, as it was first called. We keep the deer population in check, but we don't have the stomach to control ourselves. My father told me that like most crazy ideas, it took a little time to seep into almost every conversation. Good luck keeping politics out of the office when your coworker blurts out that they believe we should kill each other to save the planet. I guess it was a little hard to sit on the fence. For the first few years, of course, there was outrage and most people didn't consider it a realistic option. But like the frog in the pot, gradually getting used to hotter and hotter temperatures, hunting season stopped being treated like a bad joke and the idea began to take root. It probably didn't hurt that the fires and the earthquakes managed to get worse and worse every year, and losing all of Los Angeles was definitely a wake-up call. If I remember correctly, I think hunting season was meant to be an entire month where murder was legalized across the country, although no grudge killings the senator offered up on TV as if that helped at all. Opponents of the concept warned that every major city would turn into blood-drenched hunting grounds, death traps. That's when my dad moved us out of the big city to the small town of Brisbane Falls to get away from exactly that line of thinking. But then, ironically, just after we got settled, hunting season was repackaged and passed as Cancellation Day, a far more palatable and impersonal name. The new idea was, through the infallible democratic process, vote on a small town to eliminate entirely. Sure, it was murder, but cancellation sounded less barbaric than hunting season, and pundits on TV insisted that wiping out a specific town would prevent anyone from taking it upon themselves to kill their friends, family, and neighbors for fun. Wiping out a whole town would mostly mean that families wouldn't have to risk losing a member or two. They'd just all be wiped out in the blink of an eye, meaning less mourning, no survivors. Maybe it would even lower the crime rate across the country. Cancellation towns would be honored as national landmarks, possibly even becoming tourist destinations. The rules were pretty simple. No hunting conducted by civilians was permitted. Cancellations would be carried out by the federal government, 
And just to help get the bill passed, they added the provision that children three years and younger would be exempt. Growing up in Brisbane Falls, I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that we could one day be nominated or even selected. Sadly, that was just a fact of life. In school, it seemed like almost everyone had a cousin or a friend or a friend of a friend who had been part of a cancellation. It was almost a normal part of life, especially in the middle of the country. The only guaranteed safe havens became the cities themselves, though the cost and competition of getting a place to live was out of control. $10,000 a month to share an apartment with a dozen other people. You'd basically sleep shoulder to shoulder, but hey, you wouldn't get canceled. Actually, murmurings of adding city apartment buildings to the cancellation pool had also started recently, but it makes a morbid sort of sense. I think most New York high-rises probably have a higher population than Brisbane Falls, but no one knows if that's really on the table. And I guess I'll never find out. After a long, quiet week, Brisbane Falls won the poll by just 3,000 votes. And, well, you'd think we'd already been killed. It was like a collective hush fell over the entire town. Tara, staring at the window, said the town was glowing, and she was right. Every house in the town that night had every TV, tablet, and smartphone broadcasting the results. I bet they could see us from space. I had barely absorbed the news when a sudden knock at the door nearly made me jump out of my skin. I knew this was coming, but that didn't make it any easier. The blinding light attached to a film camera stung my eyes as a cancellation reporter filmed every excruciating moment as the guards carried my Tara away. It all happened so fast. Maybe they do it like this so the parents don't have a chance to really fight back. Or, more likely, it probably makes for good television. Seeing her beautiful, bewildered face as they closed the car door and drove off, God, it nearly killed me. The reporter, who had an infuriatingly cloying, calm voice, assured me that Tara would be okay. Her and the other kids, they'd live the rest of their lives with this moment hanging over their heads, sure, but they'd be alive. And I had the chance to make sure that Tara had everything she could ever want. A guard said they'd already reached out to my cousins and they'd take Tara to them. She would live with them in another small town, a town that I hoped would never appear on a future cancellation day poll. Almost as quickly as they burst in, the reporters and guards were gone, for now. But I knew they'd be back soon enough. Moments after they left, my neighbor Doug burst in through the back door. And that night, we planned it all out, when we were sure that no one could hear us. The stooges guarding the town spent hours that night combing through every household, removing everything we could use to hurt ourselves, from our kitchen knives to our bedsheets to our shoelaces. But with a wink, Doug told me they wouldn't be able to find his hidden stash. Doug used to work on Cancellation Day. He was an idea man, pitching creative new methods by which entire communities would find themselves wiped out. I remember a party where he bragged about the year they released lions and tigers into a small town in Missouri. Wild animals and wildwood, get it? He was a monster, and like all monsters, what finally got him to see the error of his ways was when it finally hit too close to home. Doug's mother and father were part of last year's cancellation day. His own brilliant plans had killed his parents. They lived in a valley, which our government gleefully flooded. He told me that flooding was one of the first ideas he'd ever pitched. Real wrath of God type stuff. How clever. Afterwards, Doug was a broken man. 
He quit his job and, conspiratorially, part of me wonders if Brisbane Falls was selected just so they could make sure Doug couldn't share any secrets of how Cancellation Day operates. Who knows? The night they dragged Tara away from me, we planned and plotted, and before we knew it, the sun was up. Doug told me they should have the method pole up this morning and that it moved really fast from here, and he was right. That was about the only thing he was good for, a heads up about cancellation day information. Across all of our screens that next morning came up four possibilities of how we might die. Number one, cliffhanger, in which the town is forced closer and closer to the nearby waterfall, where Brisbane Falls got its name, by the way. Ultimately, we'd all be pushed to our deaths. Number two, firewall in which a wall of fire surrounds us, gradually moving closer and closer to the center of town. Number three, hide-and-seek. This was a classic cancellation day favorite. Everyone in town is supposed to hide as seekers are sent into the town with guns, knives, and whatever else they want, killing everyone they find. And number four, fumigation day, in which our houses are wrapped in tents and a gas is released inside. Anyone who breaks out of the house is swatted dead in the street which is really the least dignified and imaginable. Alerts hit our phones as the poll went live, inviting us to vote once per day until voting ended in a week. We could participate in our own execution. Even Doug was surprised. He hadn't known about the change of rules where we'd be able to vote too. But there it was. I had the four options on my phone, and whatever I tapped might actually be the way that I'd be murdered. That day, we walked through Main Street, listening to the dinging of notifications on everybody's phones as our neighbors debated the least horrible way to die, or argued about the merit of cancellation day overall. You'd be surprised how many people insisted that this was our ultimate civic duty. Some of the older folks had even voted for the politicians who introduced the cancellation day bill. To me, it almost felt like the guilt of voting in previous cancellations made a lot of us feel like we deserved it. Having received our death sentence, it was now as if we found ourselves becoming the embodiment of the stages of grief. Plenty of people were locked in a stupor, just flat out refusing to engage with reality. My boss even called to ask me if I was coming to the office, which more than it angered me made me pity him for his denial. He would probably still be at his desk when the wall of flame or whatever singed the skin off his bones. We saw more than a few fights break out, mostly over completely mundane problems. Someone bumped into an old man who took the opportunity to lash out with his cane. The second, however, anybody drew blood, though, the guards were rushing to break it up. We were expected to save any and all bloodshed for the cameras, for cancellation day itself. Our local politicians did what they always did best, haggled and bargained over possibilities. To hear the mayor explain it, some senator from somewhere had floated the idea of ending cancellation day altogether, and if their bill hit the floor in time, maybe our execution would be canceled. This was perhaps the least realistic of the possibilities, but who could take away the hope of the people still clinging to our idiot mayor's ramblings? I'd say most people were fully trapped in their own despair. The streets, after all, were mostly empty, and if we hadn't been elected to be ritualistically murdered, this would almost be a beautiful day. Most homes were dark, with their curtains pulled shut, just dreary dens to wallow in depression. But somehow, I shrugged it off. I knew the position we were in. I saw the poll numbers changing, and there was absolutely nothing I could do to dodge what was coming. So why not just accept it, and do your best to take advantage of the situation?
With just a few days left on the poll, Fumigation Day took the lead, but it was mostly because of some streamer who, in addition to posting reaction videos and top 10 lists of previous cancellation days, decided to demonstrate this year's methods for his viewers. He had covered his bedroom in cellophane, including all the windows and doors, and then released pesticide into the air. The challenge was to see how long he could last before cutting through the plastic sheeting over the window. Well, he spent a long time in there, and then he died. People endlessly shared the video, saying that he, quote, won the fumigation day challenge, and so for a little bit, it was the most popular option. But then a day later, nobody cared. A day later than that, and all the options were neck and neck again. I still hadn't voted myself, though my phone dinged every few hours to remind me that I could. The worst part of each option was the anticipation. I didn't know how they planned to push us over a cliff, maybe a gigantic line of bulldozers, but I could imagine the scrambling and tension of people clambering over each other to avoid the inevitable. Same with the fire. As the wall of flames grew closer, eventually we'd all be clustered in the middle of Brisbane Falls, clawing at each other to be the last to die. Hide and seek and fumigation day were equally horrific. The slow burn of individuals being caught and dying, no doubt filmed from a million different angles and body cams. By now, we knew the shape of it all. I'd certainly watched enough cancellation days to imagine the whole thing, which is why I finally felt my blood pumping as the first of the broadcast vans returned. With the poll almost over, there was more to be mined out of the town's misery. It wasn't enough these days to simply broadcast cancellation day. They had to become immersive. Whoever suggested interviewing the victims probably got a gigantic raise. Barbaric. But it was what I had been waiting for. Somewhere, my daughter Tara had probably been delivered to stay with my cousin and his family. And as I approached the news van, I just hoped that they would keep her away from the TV. They wouldn't let her watch her mother's murder, would they? The door on the news van slid open, and I locked eyes with a handsome, well-groomed reporter. We scheduled our first interview almost immediately as a line formed behind me. I adopted my best, phoniest, camera-ready persona, and I sparkled to life on maybe every screen in the country. I was told to repeat the question in case they wanted to edit and reuse my footage. Fine by me. More videos, streams, broadcasts, it was all good. The ad revenue would only increase. Now the pressure was on to deliver what they wanted. How long have I lived in Brisbane Falls? Well, nearly my entire life. My father moved us out of the city to avoid hunting season, but, well, you see how well that worked out for us. What went through my mind when I found out we'd been nominated? Well, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think it was going to happen, not to us. But I knew my beautiful daughter Tara would be cared for. Have I voted in previous cancellation days? Of course I have. Every year I make sure to do my civic duty and help ensure that this planet that we call home is a wonderful, safe place to live. Not just for my little girl Tara, but for children everywhere. What's my favorite cancellation day moment? God, it's hard to pick. There are so many. I think cancellation 25 comes to mind because the talentsfolk really looked out for each other, the way we do here, and I was really inspired by their resolve, even when the bombs dropped. Have I voted on the method myself this year? No, no, I just, I just haven't been able to bring myself to it. Not out of fear for myself, but, you know, concern for my friends and neighbors. It's something we all have to take really seriously. What method do I hope takes the lead? It's tricky to pick, but I guess gun to my head I'd say cliffhanger. 
I just think all the folks watching at home would really enjoy seeing the beautiful countryside we have here, especially our gorgeous waterfall. Which method am I the most afraid of? I would have to say hide and seek. I've never been that good at hiding, but if that's the option the country wants, look, I swear to do my best. It was then that Mrs. Nielsen from down the street interrupted. She said I was taking too long to answer and that it was time for someone else to get a turn. Thankfully, and according to plan, the reporter assured her she'd get her chance, but the camera loved me. Apologizing, he turned back and gave me one last question to answer. Do I have a message out there for anyone who might be watching? Well, as I mentioned, I have a two-year-old daughter, Tara, who I just want to say something very special to. But I just, I don't think I can bring myself to say it just yet. My interview ended with the promise that we'd book another interview before cancellation day, as if after could even be an option. The reporter thanked me for my time and moved on to that ancient loudmouth Mrs. Nielsen as a producer whisked me away to talk about money. A percentage of ads from my spot would be put into an account for Tara, untouchable until her 18th birthday. Moreover, they wanted to schedule a string of spots for me in the final three days of my life, each with a fee payable to Tara's account. Doug congratulated me that night, though he gave me the intel that, though the money is good, barely anyone uses all the footage of the executed townies, as if the exposure was what I cared about. By next year, he said, everyone was just going to move on to a new batch of meat. Charming. Nice to know how people inside the system really feel about our noble cancellation day ritual. The following morning, I woke up to the sound of shouting. A protester had come to liberate us. Idiot. Of course, this was one of the rare times the cameras actually turned away, although I'm sure the folks at home would have loved watching as Martin the protester found himself trapped inside with us. He had inadvertently volunteered to be canceled. Good job, Martin. To my frustration, I accidentally locked eyes with Martin briefly, and he ran over to me. Turns out he'd been watching me on his phone the night before. My story of losing Tara was part of what inspired him to rush out to save us. I thanked him for watching and wished him the best of luck. From the look on his face, he was shocked that I didn't invite him inside. Did he really think he'd be able to stop what was coming? God, nearly every year some jackass decides to try and be a savior to the canceled townies, and this year we got Martin, screaming through a bullhorn about how cancellation day is just murder and all the guards are complicit. Was he wrong? Well, no, I don't think so. But was his protesting useless? Absolutely. We were already running out of time, and I wasn't about to waste any more with this guy who, like the others, insisted he knew how to help us escape. Rumors of people escaping cancellation day almost always end with the escapee living the rest of their life running, if they don't get killed, that is. Forget the legality of dodging your own cancellation. Lots of people in the country don't take very kindly to people who escape. You'd think maybe there'd be some sympathy, and maybe from some people there is, but after decades of cancellations, almost everyone has suffered some loss, and the idea of a person escaping seems to hit a lot of people like a slap in the face. There are plenty of cases of escapees being murdered by just regular old people out in the world. Everyone gets caught in the end. So no, escape was not an option. Where would I go anyways? I couldn't show up at my cousin's house as if nothing had happened. I'd only been putting their lives and Tara's life at risk. The truth is, the moment that Brisbane Falls was nominated, most of my decisions had been made for me, and they all revolved around that kid. 
I closed the door on Martin's shocked face, but over the coming days, sometimes I'd catch him staring in shock as I gave more interviews, sound bites, and even took part in videos reacting to moments from past cancellation days. Sadistically, they'd chosen to play cancellation day moments that resembled what Brisbane Falls was facing. Everyone loved to watch whenever Hide and Seek won the poll. It turned a kid's game into a horror movie. Crazed killers peeping around corners and average folks communicating only in whispers, only inevitably to get a butcher knife plunged into their bodies. The audio from these clips nearly echoed around town. But I had to play the game of watching and even relishing these videos. For Tara. And so I watched dozens of old clips of people just like me get dragged from underneath their beds or get cornered in a shower stall. They had me narrate infographics. Following each cancellation day, energy usage drops by several percentage points. Do you know that for every cancellation, our government plants two trees? The children of cancellation day are a core part of a better, more efficient future for not only the country, but the planet. The audience really loved me, and for me, every video was just Tara's college fund, her wedding, her first house, maybe even her kids. She wouldn't ever know me, but she would live a life built by the impossible choices presented by cancellation day. They offered me triple to announce the results of the method and delivered what I suppose was meant to be a compliment by saying they wished they had a figurehead like me for every cancellation day. I heard myself joke that I'd love to work with them again next time, and inside I cursed at myself for getting to be too good at playing their game. That night, just after sunset, with my friends and neighbors assembled in the town square, they put a microphone in front of me and handed me a tablet. The screen gave me everything I needed to say. Lit only by powerful spotlights, I again pictured my baby's future as I damned the people of my once peaceful community. Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me. Our beautiful community of Brisbane Falls has finally received their method of cancellation, which I am proud to share with all of you. On my screen, the words flashed, and the method is, and then came a countdown. They wanted a dramatic pause. I could hear the town holding its breath, stealing themselves for how everyone would die. In the front row, Doug and Martin stared daggers at me. I saw the words and robotically delivered our fate. Hide and seek. The screaming began the moment I said hide, and just after seek, suddenly the spotlights cut out, plunging us into darkness. It was the last time I'd see most of those people. The screen of my tablet was the only light I had, and it had a new message for me. Make it good. Then it said, run. The moment my legs allowed me to, I turned and bolted in what I believed to be the direction of my house. The guards had gotten rid of anything we could use to protect ourselves, and the entire town had instantly turned into an arena for bloodshed. But somehow the idea of home still meant some sort of safety. How long would my doors and windows realistically hold, though? The laughter and cackling seemed to come from all around the town as the killers were unleashed. Immediately all around me, thuds, swipes, and slashes told me that they had found their victims. The sounds of death, gurgles of blood, shrieks cut short, and bodies falling to the ground followed my mad dash to get to my house. Somehow, I managed to make it up to the familiar porch and got inside. I instinctively threw the deadbolt and reached for the light switch. To my surprise, the inside of my cozy living room lit up for just a brief moment before I slammed the lights off, realizing that because of the absolute darkness outside, any sort of light was an invitation to the killers. And for all I knew, I'd already given away my position. 
I instantly knew that I couldn't stay here now. I had to assume someone saw as my house briefly lit up. Damn. I crept through the house and left through the back door and glanced in the direction of the tree line. Right there, the edge of town. It was so close. But I knew somewhere in the dark there were guards watching the perimeter. If ever they were ready for attempts to escape, it was now. Instead, I headed in the opposite direction, to Doug's house. I knew that he had a secret stash of supplies and weapons. He might have been disgusted at my eagerness to play the fool for the cameras, but he had plenty of blood on his hands himself. Besides, we had planned this, that if all else failed, I'd join him. A calm breeze suddenly blew through my hair, and I had a flashback of gentle times. My father installing a swing set for me, the party where I announced I was pregnant with Tara, my daughter taking her first steps. But then I was pulled rudely back into reality by the sound of glass breaking, a scream and a crunch of someone landing on their driveway. This was all really happening. As I crept through the backyards, I stumbled over something that turned out to be a dead body. Throwing at my hands to catch myself, I dropped onto grass wet with this person's blood. And though I broke my fall, I also broke the screen of the tablet, which I still had with me. As I pushed myself up to stand, I suddenly felt the hard lens of a camera, and I realized that this person on the ground must have been one of the film crew. Occupational hazard, I guess. When hide-and-seek is picked, usually all the footage plays out on TV thanks to security cameras placed around the town, and this was why. I guess this year they changed the rules, and they wanted TV cameras on the ground. Too bad they didn't give the film crews a heads-up as to what was coming. I dug through the pockets of the person laying in their own blood, looking for anything to defend myself, but came up empty. I guess whoever killed this guy probably did the same, but they missed one thing. In the grass near the body was some sort of headset. When I picked it up, I realized they were goggles, and where they were, the pitch-black darkness turned green and clear. Night vision. Oh, so that's how they thought they'd be safe. Well, they should have known better. I knew the goggles weren't going to completely protect me, but they gave me something of an advantage. Looking around, I couldn't see anybody in the immediate area, but that didn't mean someone wasn't lurking just around the next corner. And of course, I could still hear the carnage all around me. Who knew how many might be dead at this point? Gathering my wits, I approached Doug's kitchen door, and I was surprised to find it unlocked. You'd think with everything going on, everyone would just have every door and window bolted shut, but here I was, just able to walk in. Once the door was closed behind me, the sounds of death outside were just slightly muffled, and it struck me as eerie how quiet Doug's house was. I couldn't see or hear any movement, and I wondered if he'd fled. But the truth was that Doug might not have even made it back to his house from the town square. If I was alone, I'd have to find the hidden cache of supplies by myself. I quietly searched the kitchen first, cursing myself for not asking Doug days earlier where it would be hidden. I just assumed he'd be here. I looked through cabinets, the pantry, inside and behind the fridge. Nothing. Suddenly, a thud overhead. I stood stone still for minutes that felt like hours, waiting for another sound. I had to make a split-second decision. I could leave the house now and risk my life outside or keep searching for the stash and risk someone being upstairs. When minutes passed with no sound or movement, I decided it was best to keep looking. I needed any weapons that Doug might have hidden, and so I crept through the main floor, searching closets and looking under sofas, and finally I turned my attention to the second floor. Making my way upstairs, I thought that Doug's secret supply had to be in his bedroom, 
My father used to keep a baseball bat just underneath his bed in case he needed something to protect us with in the middle of the night. I wrapped my hand around the doorknob into his bedroom and twisted it, pushing the door open slowly. It turned out that Doug had made it all the way back home. The noose was tied around the rafters in his bedroom. The thud I'd heard from downstairs was the chair he'd been standing on. I supposed he kicked it over in the struggle. The rope still creaked ominously as Doug's lifeless body swayed gently. On the desk beside him was a notepad, with his final words scrawled across a page. Did you think I'd play by your rules? Suddenly, a phone rang. It was an old landline just next to Doug's bed. Part of me wondered what he'd been using a landline for, but knowing I'd never get an answer from him, I simply picked up the receiver and heard a deep voice on the other end. Last woman standing doubles her earnings. They knew exactly where I was, and they wanted a really good show. If that was the case, I was going to be the star of that show. I'd give them everything they wanted. And Tara? Well, Tara would never want or need anything for the rest of her life. I would do whatever it took. A sudden shattering of glass sent a shockwave down my spine. It had come from downstairs. They were here. I heard a woof of fire that came beneath my feet. In the kitchen, I think. They were burning down the neighborhood and smoking me out of my hiding place. On Doug's bed was a frankly pathetic array of weapons, a butcher knife and an empty revolver, and no bullets to be seen anywhere. But with no time to waste, I grabbed them, thinking at first about how my odds of surviving had improved just a little bit, and then reminding myself that there was no way to beat the game. I could only maybe delay the inevitable. No one gets out alive. Out the window, I could see a mob of killers lighting another projectile to throw into a house. They probably didn't even know I was in here or if anybody was in any of the houses, but they were just burning them down to eliminate places for people to hide, or maybe just for the fun of it. I quickly moved down the stairs and out the front door before the fire had a chance to spread, and the neighborhood around me, and as far as I could see, looked like hell on earth. They'd systematically set fire to every building. Forget the night vision goggles. The entire town was glowing. The bodies of dozens of residents were illuminated, their blood shining, reflecting the flames around them. To my left, someone was being dragged out of a burning building, the clothes singed and smoking. Their savior wasn't saving their life, however, and with a gasp, I watched them plunge a knife straight into the burning person's chest. I walked up from behind, up to the killer, readying my knife, and just before I slid it into his spine, I noticed a camera following my every move. This was what they wanted. That's fine. I would give them a show to remember. For now, the smartest move was to kill the killers. I needed them to take out as many townies as possible, of course, but I couldn't risk having too many of the maniacs running around, or else they might get the better of me. I had to find ways to ensure I'd be the last woman standing. I scored my second kill just outside of the sheriff's station. I came across a cackling woman who was crouched like an animal, choking the life out of Mrs. Nielsen. I was able to slice the woman's throat, but it's not as quick a kill as the movies lead you to believe. Her blood spurted and dripped onto Mrs. Nielsen, who looked more shocked to see me brandishing a knife than she had looked while being choked. The killer was still cackling, though now the laughs were merged with gasps of shock, each propelling blood from her mouth and sliced neck. The woman turned and with the last of her energy lunged at me, knocking me to the ground. Her blood-drenched hand slipped over my neck, but her strength was failing, making it easy to slip my knife deep into her left side. 
As she cried out in shock, I rolled her off me and pulled myself to my feet, finding myself standing over Mrs. Nielsen, who stared back, unsure if I was her hero or her next attacker. And for just a moment, I wasn't sure myself either. I thought of Tara and the deep voice that told me that the last woman standing doubles her earnings, and then I stepped towards Mrs. Nielsen, who was weakened on the ground in front of me. From behind me, a voice suddenly came begging me to stop. It was Martin, the protester. He asked me to drop the knife, telling me we could get out alive. He knew a way, but he didn't know what I knew. He didn't know that I'd chosen to stay. The day the town found out we'd been nominated for cancellation day, I'd already known. Doug still had some connections. They weren't much, but they gave him two hours to get out of town before the nominations were made public and the guards arrived. He decided to confide in me. I could have grabbed Tara and escaped with her, but where would we go? And once they realized we'd dodge cancellation day, how would we survive? No. Tara was young enough to be exempt. I let them take her, and I planned to put on the best show possible to raise money for her. The fact of the matter is, she'd have a better life because of cancellation day. And I'd made sure of that. Doug, for his part, decided to stay because he had no one left to go to either. And maybe it was a chance for penance for him. And now here was Martin, who chose to come, who got himself locked up with the rest of us for no good reason at all. Well, Mrs. Nielsen could wait. I took two steps towards Martin when I saw him look over my shoulder, eyes wide with fear. Whipping around, I expected to see someone sneaking up on me, but instead, there was nothing. How did I let myself get distracted by him? That's when I felt the knife cut into my ribcage, scraping bone and carving flesh. I dropped to the ground as my lungs filled with blood and rolled to my side to find Martin standing over me. He had tricked me. Lowering himself over me, he yanked the knife out of my side and leaned in close enough to let me hear him whisper, They said my family could have double your earnings if I took you out. Over Martin's shoulder, I could see another security camera above the entrance to the sheriff's station, staring down at us coldly. I imagined Tara for the last time, and finally I had a message to share with her. I'm sorry. With the last of my energy draining... I thought about all the reaction videos, ratings, podcasts, and replays that were undoubtedly already being produced about this moment, as millions of viewers stared at me on every kind of screen possible. And then Martin stuck his knife into the center of my chest, and the show went on. This week's episode came to us from the mind of writer Will Rogers and was based loosely on the horrifying story, The Lottery, by Shirley Jackson. Did you know Jackson wrote and published the story in The New Yorker all the way back in 1948, well before the current trend of dystopian fiction and books and films? And as much as we love this genre, the story wasn't received well when it was published. Readers canceled their subscriptions and slammed the publication with hate mail. But today, it stands as one of the most beloved short stories of modern American literature because it forces us to confront some of the worst things about our society, about what we value, and what we get used to accepting. Sure, it's an extreme example, but human history is full of blind traditions that are both horrific and yet become accepted as social norms. 
like the ancient Hindu practice of sati, for example, in which a living wife was expected to burn on the funeral pyre with her dead husband. Not the only culture, by the way, that celebrated human sacrifice. There's the Chinese tradition of foot binding, in which young girls had their feet bound so tightly that they'd never grow and instead would end up deformed and painful. So ask yourself the question of what it is that we now accept, that you even accept, that in another time and age would be considered horrifying. And then ask yourself this, is cancellation day so far-fetched after all? Night's Tale was written by Will Rogers. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lubell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thank you.